This is the show that pulls back the industry curtain. We're exploring pop culture, music icons, and food gods. It's the Jeremiah Show with Will Knox. Broadcasting from the HJL Hospitality and Evolve Studios in LA and KZSB AM 1290 and FM 96.9 Santa Barbara or somewhere from the road. And now, Mr. Restaurant, Will Knox. Welcome back to Season 3, Episode 1 of Mr. Restaurant. Today, we're digging into the restaurant business with the legendary Michael McCarty. Michael, thank you for being here. You know, it all started in 1979 when you played a major role putting in what has become known as California cuisine on the map. I'd like to talk to you about that. I'd like to talk about your life. I'd like to talk to you about where you're going. So here we are. Welcome to my party because I know you've thrown a few yourself. You got it. Great to be here. Thank you very, very much. So let's get down to the nitty gritty. Where were you born? I was born in New York, a little town called Mount Kisco. We lived in Briarcliff Manor on the Hudson. And how many were in your family? I had three brothers, so there were four boys and a mom and dad. And uh, I was one of three boys. Yeah, I was the middle kid. Yeah, I was the number two. But and we had a great family. So, was there a big age disparity when you were growing up? No, no, no. We were all very, very classic fifties. We were all two years apart. Had your parents been uh, assimilated in America or had they come over from Ireland, like the Macaulay's? Oh, no, no. It was a great-grandparents' time that came over from Ireland and England. Uh, my father's family settled in Michigan. My mother's in Indiana. Uh, and uh, they, were, uh, they were great people. So nothing to discuss there of any kind of nefarious, you know, uh, no nature. Not that I'm well, Barbara yeah, Walters, God when rest her soul. When an Irish, when an Irish guy marries an English woman, a, a, a Catholic marries a Protestant, there was, of course, an uproar uh, in the United States and back in Ireland. But once I got to know my mother, they all threw in the towel and had a blast for 40 years. Was your mother a cook? My mother and father entertained. Ah, they, the reason I one of the main reasons I'm in this business is because they had a fantastic group of friends in Briarcliff. Uh, they were a close knit group of about 12, 15 families. And they always were getting together to entertain. The food thing was extremely important for them, but it was not like the intellectual, you know, insanity that people talk about now. It was more of the idea, which is how I decided the restaurant business was it was like throwing a party every night and giving everybody a bill and everybody had a big time. And that's what they did, whether they were barbecuing outside, they were very seasonal. We had a little beach shack in Rhode Island. So we, all the summer we would be there and the, you know, being introduced to all of that seafood and fantastic stuff. There it was a very big Portuguese environment there. So we learned an awful lot both in the farming department and in the fish department. Um, but really, that was it. They were, they were great. I mean, they were uh, a fantastic mom and dad. My dad commuted for 30 years to Manhattan, worked for General Electric. My mother was your classic 50s uh, mother, very involved in her four boys and uh, many other things, of course. Did she but, follow uh, cookbooks like Betty Crocker or anything like yes, that? Yes, she was a very good cook. Uh, you know, uh, the New York Times cookbook was a big hit. Uh, years later, I bought them, you know, I introduced them to Julia Child. 
and I got them the Julia Child cookbooks. But wait, she wait, really, wait, wait, uh, wait, 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 wait a second. Yeah. I introduced my parents to Julia Child. So right. how do you go from this little town in New York to, right. well, I want to introduce my mom and dad to Julia Child, my good yeah. friend. Well, you know, it's, been, that a crazy, it's been a crazy, uh, uh, it's been a crazy 70 years, almost. Not You're not yet, 70. But, uh, next month. Mazel tov, as we would say. Yeah. In my, my tribe. But the, the thing is, is that, uh, as I said, they really were always focused on having a great party, great people, great environment, indoors, outdoors, spring, summer, fall, winter, uh, just a, a, an appropriate attention to detail, but without any kind of fuss. I was just going to say no fuss, no fuss, right? Yeah, no fuss. And that's and, very emblematic and, of your restaurant. Yeah. Well, and you see, I, I went away to France as a junior in high school. And uh, what prompted uh, that? That was a, it's a program called Andover Nexus. And we had a program in Rennes, France and Brittany and in Barcelona and Spain. And you went as a junior in high school, not college, high school. You lived with a family for the year. You were completely immersed. And the night before I went, uh, in those days, we traveled by boat. Uh, we went into Manhattan to New York City. And um, my parents took me to a restaurant called Laurent. And in those days, as you well remember, the classic good restaurants in any major city in America or the world, for that matter, were based on a Escoffier. They were classical French, French restaurants. Yes. Maxine's look. Uh, and that night I went in there. The next day I was getting on the boat to France, uh, but I was just mesmerized and blown away by the electricity of this dining room. I'd never been in a real restaurant like that before. There weren't any where we lived. Um, and when the owner came in, the electricity ratcheted up. Uh, everybody looked great. It was September, you know, they were all back from the summer. And uh, I and then I remember my father and his friend uh, arguing over the bill. And it sort of like came right together like that. It's like, as they said, this is the same feeling I see when my parents are entertaining. Everybody's got this kind of vibe, this electricity. However, you get them to pay at the end. That's what inspired restaurant business right there. Had you ever had any inkling to go anywhere else or were you just simply like at 15 Excuse me, 15 years old. Is this about the time you were there, 15 in France? Yeah. And, and, yeah, not really. You know, and, and you didn't want to be a baseball player or something like that? No, not at all. I mean, I had no idea what a restaurant was. As I said, they didn't exist where we lived, uh, you know, and, and that was just such a mesmerizing experience and epiphany in a, in a funny way. And it either got better because the next day I got on this student boat with 1,500 students. Uh, 50 of them were us the young juniors in high school, the other 1450 were juniors in college, all going abroad. And, but the, the, the good news is it took 11 days. Even the better news, it was run by a, an Italian company. So the, the meal periods were sensational. You know, they really, it was, I learned about in, in 11 days, more about how the Italians live from these, all these fantastic waiters and servers and everybody that was involved uh, in their rituals. And, you know, so I, I sort of got that really intensely uh, ingrained in me. And then when I landed in France, I happened to live in a family that was very similar to that. You know, they, they really, they lived in Brittany. Brittany, as you may know, is a folklore. It's Breton. They have a very classic culture. Uh, they're surrounded by the sea. So the seafood is absolutely impeccable. It's a very big growing um province so that the 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 food was always fantastic and i happened to have a family that really was large and always entertained and so literally within uh, uh, within a 16 17 18 month period uh, i learned everything i needed to know including which was the top off that which we didn't have in the united states of america it was we had appropriate cooking schools for students that wanted to pursue this as a career you know remember in america you may remember in junior high school it was like home ec right you know, but there's no cia at that time no, of any the consequence CIA in was the united a, states cia was in the 60s was the 50s was a um 
you know, was a, 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 a vet program. You know, I mean, it was you come back from the wars, you go to work here. You learn how to do this. It was just beginning to find itself. Uh, and, 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 you know, within the 70s is when it started to happen. Julia Child really had a lot to do with that. Um, and a couple of people that had been to France, you know, in the 60s uh, started to get it going here. But when I, I mean, came, if you said so CIA in the fit, if you said CIA was, you know, the, the CIA, it was. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, wasn't and they, the Culinary Institute of America. That's America sure. Yeah. And they and they really got going. Uh, you know, they got on the mantle on the bandwagon for the modern American stuff in the 80s, like everybody did in the United States, as everybody did in the world, by the way. The 80s was an extremely important time, not to jump forward, but uh, but anyway, jumping so forward from my family, I learned about the Ecole Hotelier, which is the French school that you would go to as a student. Uh, like there, after ninth grade, you make a decision. You're going to go for a baccalaureate for the university program like we do in America, or you can go into any number of trade schools. It's very formal there, and they're early organized. So I, I went back to Paris. I went to Paris. I enrolled at the Ecole Hotelière and the, the uh, Cordon Bleu and the Académie du Vin, which was run by Stephen Spurrier. And, um, Were you fluent uh, in to, French at that time? Yes. Well, you see, the, 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 the beauty of having gone to Brittany was I spoke fluent French. It was an immersive school. And it was very intense. And so I was able to like jump right in in Paris. It was like very unique. Uh, and uh, so I spent the better half of the first half of the 70s there. And you're how old at that time? Uh, well, then I, let's see, flash forward. Uh, I would have been 20 in 73. So I started when I was like 19, 20, 21, 22, 20, 21, 22, 23. Um, but wanting to be a chef. Well. I knew very, very early on that I needed to be a chef. As a background. Uh, the horror stories of restaurants where the chef walks out on a Saturday night. So whereas I was very intrigued with being a chef, the beautiful thing about the Ecole Hotelier was they offered the three parts. They offered the chef, the front of the house, and the back office. So you were trained in all three departments. And then when you're halfway through the program, you make a decision which one you want to go to. You want to go on and become a chef? You want to go on and become a front of the house guy? Or do you want to just stick and be in the business side? And so I was fortunate to understand that at a very early age. And I realized that if I wanted to be in the restaurant business, I had to know everything. And so, yes, the chef was the most glamorous part of it. And it certainly was the majority of what I did there. And I learned from I learned. I worked in one restaurant for one night and I said, this is ridiculous because as you know, you know, they put you over there and you peel potatoes for two months. And, you know, I said, yeah, I can go out to all these restaurants and learn more just having dinner there about what's good and bad and ugly about them than that. So that's what I did that entire time I was in Paris, as well as cooking. I started a little bistro and um, that's where I began to formulate my version of new American food. You started a little bistro in Paris. That was your first my, foray uh, yes, into ownership. Yes, on the It was a little tiny 22-seater. How did you make money on a 22-seat restaurant? Well, who did, it, it didn't matter. I, I didn't How'd pay any rent. avoid going owned, under? <laughs> yeah, no, my friend owned the building. That Nobody cared about rent ah. those days. Nobody cared about anything. You know, it was basically entirely illegal, you know, and I ran it only at night. I would come back and cook, and I had a barman and a dishwasher, and that's it. I mean, literally, when I say it's tiny, it's tiny. It was. It actually seat. sounds very cool to me to go to a 22-seater. Oh, it was seater. a lot of fun. Was there you an know, emphasis on... And Ile Saint-Louis was a very interesting little island. Then is it that was where it was? Ile Saint-Louis? It was a little village. Now it's completely overtaken by art galleries and real estate things. But in those days, I had three fish markets. I had three boulangeries. I had three meat guys. And they would have everything ready. So when I came back, I would just pick it up and cook it. Very romantic image of Paris. Yes, it was great. And the cuisine then, did you focus on everything French or did you go into Brittany's food or what did uh, you go into? Well, basically, basically what I did was I really, uh, I sort of really took from the way my parents cooked. My father was a barbecue guy and my mother, they were very simple. They cooked really great stuff. 
you know, uh, tasty. And, very tasty. And, and so I was I was going with this. That's the way I was brought up. I'm learning Escoffier food at the Ecole Hotel Guerre and at the Coron Bleu. But surprisingly, right at that time in the first half of the 70s was when Go and Mio and the French Nouvelle Cuisine Revolution occurred. I was very fortunate to be there. The the the, the late 60s, the Paul Bocuse, the the Frère Trois La Pyramide, they were all beginning this idea of of what is Nouvelle Cuisine. And Go and Mio had just opened and they were duking it out with the Michelin Guide. And so they were saying, nope, you know what? You you keep your Escoffier. Uh, we're we're going to take it to another place. And of course, like any revolution, sometimes they go too far, which Nouvelle Cuisine did, but it dialed itself back. Wait, wait, why did and it go it was, too far? Well, in other words, it became almost a cliche, you know, where you've got, you got the big Vilawan bush white plates that are like 14 inches in diameter and you got one scallop in the middle with the sauce. And the this and the that. And two thousand dollars on your ticket. Yeah, <laughs> and and so and so, but but what what happened really was you you brought up a very important word. You said Brittany. What what I realized that as I grew up in New York, I went to school in Pennsylvania. I went to school in Illinois. hadn't been to California yet, but in New York, you know, I could see the let's use the term terroir of being in Rhode Island at the beach and understanding that this is where my mother would buy the vegetables. And she was the wife of the, of the vegetable lady was the wife of the fisherman. And so we would buy the fish from him and that, and they had a great butcher in Watch Hill. And so, you know, you, you, rather than going to the supermarket, it was sort of like a regional thing. And, Brittany was again a very important part of me because they were very proud of their food. They had not only had the Breton food, the galettes and everything and this and that, but the seafood and the produce that was grown there. I was very fortunate that the family I lived in were old ancient uh, royalty that lost all their money, but they held on to their 900 year old chateau that hadn't had any repairs and maintenance for 900 years. To give you an example, uh, all the bedrooms, the beds are on wheels. Because when it rained, it leaked. You had to move your bed here or move it over there. It's a great idea. But they had uh, wonderful sharecroppers. You know, one would grow the pigs, one would grow the beef, one would grow the vegetables. And they were close enough to all three sides of the ocean to get the Baylon oysters and the and the uh, the mool and the and the Dover sole and the turbo. Everything grew right there. It was fantastic. So regional food became a big part. Of of me and remember in Paris I was there when Leal was still there, so you go to Leal and as I said before on Ile Saint Louis I was very fortunate that it still was a quaint little one street neighborhood with all of these food markets on it, run by these families. So the education was, I mean the cheese, everything, the fish, everything was fantastic. God, I can smell it and feel it and taste it right oh, now. You're you're I really mean, giving me really, the hunger pang yeah. for Paris and. Yeah, it's cooking. really the out of the it's really out of the movies. It's really was amazing. I mean, I couldn't have asked for a better time to be there with that Nouvelle Cuisine revolution going on and realizing that you didn't have to just cook Escoffier food. You know, because if you the, the goal in those days, whether you were in Berlin or Paris or London or Rome or New York or Chicago, was to duplicate the beef Wellington. You see what I'm saying? The Duplicos, the lobster Thermidor, you know, the beauty of Escoffier food is he codified it and he created what I call the Latin of French cooking. But it's the Latin of true cooking. And this is before you get, of course, into the ethnic foods. But anything, anything, any chef that could master Escoffier food had the Latin to go on and create whatever they wanted. And know what worked and what didn't. And that gave you the confidence then to eventually move to California and start your own, quote, movement, which we're going to talk about. Dr. D is giving me the high sign. I think we're going to go to commercial Dr. D in a minute or so. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Okay. One minute, I guess. So, but, you know, continue, because I want to get into your migration into California and that cuisine. And then then out of the blue, my parents moved to Malibu, California. Ah. That's what brought you out here. So when I came home from France, um, I went to see my brother in Boulder, Colorado, 
he was at school there. On my way out, I went to I went to the uh, summer program that Cornell has. It's a ninety day program. Very very. It's basically if you want to. Mostly they're all Europeans at the time, uh, or or not Europeans, but foreigners at the hospitality school at, at that school at Cornell. Yeah, it's the Cornell Hospitality School. Right. They have a great program. You take one class a week. You take it, you know, eight hours a day, one class a week. And it Americanizes you from how do you butcher differently in America to business and tax law. And it's a, it was a great re-entry. And then I went out to see my brother on the way to California. And I ended up uh, getting Shanghai into teaching a class of French cooking in French. We can go into that later. Wait, in Boulder or in California? In Boulder. In Boulder. Before you hit California. So Before now you, I hit. On my way. Now you're like, what, 20, 22, got, something like I that? I got waylaid. I'm 21. 21. 74. Late but you had immersed yourself for years in this French cuisine and culinary yeah. world. So you were very yeah. ahead of the curve for certainly your generation. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I was very My fortunate. generation. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, we're going to break. And now we're from Boulder. We're going to move into Malibu and get into that whole scene. And, and discuss Michael McCarty's life and times. And I'm Mr. Restaurant, just really <laughs> enthralled with the real Mr. Restaurant. We'll be right back. Thanks, Michael. Good. Mr. Restaurant is a tasty new segment on The Jeremiah Show. Host Will Knox, renowned restaurant real estate specialist, serves up a fresh look at the restaurant business. On the menu, celebrity chefs, startups, operators, deal makers, designers, and those are just some of the appetizers. Look for all of Mr. Restaurant shows. Tell your smart speaker to play The Jeremiah Show, Mr. Restaurant. Hi, I'm Shadow Stevens. While I'm doing this and that and the other thing at the very same time, I'm having a great time on The Jeremiah Show, the greatest show in the history of the world. For the love of God, subscribe. No, seriously, subscribe. Welcome, Los Angeles. The Jeremiah Show is now on Radio Candy Radio. Discover a world of emotions, your digital radio. The Jeremiah Show airs 10 p.m. Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. RadioCandyRadio.com. Hi, I'm Mariel Hemingway, and you're listening to The Jeremiah Show. Well, we're back at it with Michael McCarty, and I'm Will Knox, and this is Mr. Restaurant. So here we are, Michael. We were in Boulder, moving west. You left Boulder. You were teaching briefly in Boulder. And you moved to Malibu, or the Boo, as it's called by many, yeah. because your yeah. parents moved there. Exactly. And you're 21 years old, and now what am I going to do with my life? I'm 21. Right. Right. So well, other than smoking pot, what were you doing? Yeah. So what I did was- uh, Not the, that you were, way, I was just saying. The way that I paid for a lot of my schooling and things like that and lifestyle was I catered while I was in Paris. Because the American expats love to have somebody who could uh, speak French and English and, and round them up and get them going. It was still, again, you know, a difficult time for a lot of people. Um, but when I was in Boulder, I, uh, the final exam of my last class, uh, uh, one of my students brought a girl who is, who is now my wife. For a third, uh, 40, 50 years ago. Oh my gosh. That's a real <laughs> testament to you and your wife and your life. This yeah. is, and her name. Yeah. At any rate, so I said is... to her in December, I said, uh, uh, What are you doing? And she says, I'm going to LA to see my parents. I said, I'm going to LA to see my parents. So we moved, so we moved here. And uh, that week between Christmas and New Year's, we went out to the Five or six best restaurants in L.A., you know, Perino's, Scandia. You had that much money in your pocket? Oh, I, I couldn't was a get big near them. Let me, let me tell you, I, I, I did some big parties. Good for you. Uh, Laramie Taj, Ma Maison, Le Restaurant, Saint-Germain. Those were about it. And uh, I was well, that was one of the things on the checklist. She could eat and understand because she grew up in Switzerland. She's American, but she grew up in Switzerland. So she spoke French fluently, she for spoke sure. French. And German, probably. French. And and she you knew how to Wolfgang eat in French Puck. restaurants. So, you know, it was great. And, and we've you, been together ever since. You've been together ever since. And her name is? Kim. 
Can we refer to Kim as being very instrumental in your life at the restaurant? A hundred percent. And what did she do? She's okay, an artist. So he, she's an artist. Yes. And that contributed greatly to your whole overall concept of what Michael Absolutely. should be? 100%. When I, on, on the little place on Eagle San Louis, there were local artists that still lived on, could afford to live on the island. And, and they, I did uh, uh, one of the things that people hear about. I did trade for art on the walls. So I got all these crazy artists. They put the work up there. And when I came out here, little did I know, but I learned very rapidly that Santa Monica, Venice, and L.A. was a very big, burgeoning, emerging artist community here. Huge. You know, Richard Diepenkorn, Bill Bryce, uh, Larry, Be Larry Hockney. Uh, Bell, Hockney. I mean, it was insane. Billy L. Bankston, Laddie John Dill. All Chester the West Side B. Venice types. All the West Side Venice and Santa Monica types. And, uh, and, and Kim came out here and went to Art Center College of Design and then got her MFA at UCLA in the fine arts. But, you know, uh, our restaurants have always been about, you know, we did the gallery look, you know, rather than the, the, uh, the red patent leather and the, you know, closed red velvet curtains and all that stuff, all of the Escoffier style restaurants we did open air outdoor gardens all white lots of artwork we showed tons of artwork and kim really coordinated the entire thing and um but what got that into your brain to kind of say all right we've gone to the six restaurants in la now kimmy did you ever call her kimmy no okay i'll call her kimmy kimmy <laughs> a lot hi. Of people do. uh kim I want to open a restaurant. Did you did you say that to her? Oh, oh yeah. She well, she always knew. I mean, I always knew we were going to open a restaurant here. Okay. You know, I called up I called up uh, Lois Dwan, who was the writer for the LA, LA Times. LA Times. And I called her out of the blue, cold caller. I said, "Lois, I'm Michael. This is my history. I just came from France. This is what I've been doing. I'm brand new in LA. I know absolutely nothing about it. Um, who is the most uh, knowledgeable chef?" And who is the most knowledgeable wine person? Um, and she said, uh, well, Jean Bertrand at L'Hermitage and Dennis Overstreet at the Wine Merchant. Hold on one second. We'll be right back with Michael McCarty. He just stepped out of the room for a second to show me something that's tech-related tech and it has to do with power. Because I think he's powering back up because he powered down. And in the business of media that I'm in, I guess I'm vamping until ready while Michael we gets go. himself. We're ready. Here he is. He's back in. Okay. Power. Welcome back, Michael McCarty. Jesus. All right. So we're talking about Lois Juan and Dennis so Lois Overstreet. Says to me, so I immediately go over. Best to wine Jean and Bertrand. best chef. And I introduce myself to him. We hit it off perfectly. You're not a shy guy, are you? No. And uh, we had a blast and he had a beautiful restaurant. It was stunning. And he was the only chef really at the time uh, that was embracing uh, Nouvelle Cuisine, but not the stupid part of Nouvelle Cuisine. This is L'Hermitage. This is L'Hermitage right. restaurant. On La Cienega? Was it on La Cienega, if I recall? Yes, on La Cienega. Right. Dennis was uh, a, a whiz in the wine department because he was in Beverly Hills, the wine merchant, and he was the most knowledgeable. And he, because he happened to have an extremely uh, energetic crowd who loved to buy wine. This is the beginning. You know, it was like the lawyers and the doctors and 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 Hollywood uh, really were into wine, and they were learning how to learn about it. And you were going to so teach him the class at Dennis's of teaching food and wine pairing. And we had an absolute blast down in the basement. Talk about the grotto. And, and so all of these people would show up. Some of them are still my clients today. And they would, uh, we would show them how I would, we would actually cook and they'd participate. I'm um, a little hot plates and everything. And uh, then we pair each course with wine, because remember something in those days, 
It was white wine with fish and red wine with meat. And that was about it. Very elementary. And people knew. Uh, it's like when I was at the Academy Duvan Paris. You basically had three classes. You had Bordeaux, Burgundy, and Champagne. Uh, and then as years went by, they picked up the Rhone and they picked up the Jura and they picked up the Loire Valley, you know, and they and, and then and then and then this thing called Italian wine showed up, you know, in the mid 80s. And the same thing with Spanish wine, you know, again, being commercially modernized. Um, and so so that's that's that sort of got me going here. And I realized that in that time, I also met through Jean. Uh, his purveyors, uh, and I realized that they had a uh, great meat program here, Superior Meats. Uh, they had a fairly good chicken program. They had a great squab program, but they didn't have any good ducks. So Joe and I partnered, and we started a duck farm. It was where? In Mad Mal Ducks. Where was Mad Ducks. No, they wouldn't have us in Malibu. They wouldn't have us anywhere but in Acton on the way to Palmdale and Lancaster. They didn't care what we grew up there. So we started a duck farm and we did the moulard, which is the mule duck, the Scovy male and the Pekin female. There's a whole story to that. Made foie gras in the beginning. Um, and this is before you opened Michael's? This is before, yes. And during so, that same time, working with quite uh, Dennis Weiss, who was from Northern Produce. That was the Weiss family. They started one of the great produce companies. Uh, finding farmers. Uh, uh, to grow things that we bring seeds in, you know, we started this whole process of moving them towards this, you know, like growing Ari Colvera, for example, they didn't grow that here. Um, blood oranges didn't grow them here. Uh, there are many things, you know, when you wanted herbs in those days, you went to the spice rack in the supermarket. Listen, you, you wouldn't know. call Ari Colvera anything yeah. other than green beans, I guess. In green those beans, days, and right? they were five times the size. They right. weren't the little baby breeds. But anyway, so it was a very educational uh, couple of years. Uh, and then I, I looked around. I said, it has to be outdoors. I made a decision to be on the far west side because I couldn't stand driving into Beverly Hills and back every other day. So that's how I ended up in Santa Monica. So you were living in Santa Monica? No, no, no. That's how I, I was living in Malibu. I've always lived in the, in the same place in Malibu. So did your, oh, okay. So you're, you're still today living in the same place that you, Settled with Kim. Yes. Wow. And your parents, were they far away from they, you? They, they moved to Denver, Colorado, from Malibu. <laughs> so is that how you got involved with uh, Chef Jimmy Schmidt in Denver? That's another story. Oh, my God. We've got stories that are coming out of our ears. Do we have enough time, Dr. Well, D? Oh, Dr. You know, D's telling me one minute till our next break. And then how much time do we have with Michael? 15 20 minutes. 15 20 we can't get michael mccarty's life into 15 20 minutes what the hell yeah, we could do it we no do it. no we got we, we're, we're not even open we're not even open yet in santa monica all right listen i want to know then you you you're in santa monica with kim you're on the west side are you then saying to yourself i want to open a restaurant in santa monica is that what's going oh, we're on in malibu all right you're in malibu. malibu and i said the furthest I'm going to drive every day, because, you know, the smog and the traffic was horrible here. Those days Looney. was in Santa Monica. And it was, you know, Santa Monica was a wasteland. It was like the Third Street Promenade was a disaster. It was totally. like tumbleweeds going down it. But I looked at all over the place, starting at the 405 going west. Went, I went back and forth with about four or five places that had some sort of outdoor space. But this one, this one was perfect. Wait a second. So you were intent then on saying, I'm going into the restaurant business. I'm oh, yeah. a chef, restaurateur. Absolutely. Okay. That's how your mindset was. That at, my mindset at 20, was that 23 years old. Yeah. And I, you know, I was going to build a restaurant that accomplished uh, a half a dozen important things, the food being the most important, but the service. And the way the place looked, the decor, uh, the attitude. Remember, everything was French. There were no Americans really in our business. There were a handful in the United States, like me, that were pioneering in there, like San Francisco, Alice Waters. Uh, you had Larry Forgione in New York. Um, again, you had uh, Jimmy Schmidt in Detroit. You had Larry Forgione. In, I'm sorry, you had uh, Bradley Odgen in Kansas City. 
You had Paul Prudhomme in New Orleans. You had Jeremiah Tower in San Francisco. You had Mark Miller in San Francisco. And, and you know, that's it. You could count the regional American chefs on, on both hands. In, in the late 70s and the early 80s that were getting into the program. And, and, and you know, it's like it just exploded in the 80s. And right, well, hold that thought. Hold that thought because we got a break right now. We're going to get okay. right back to the opening of the famous Michael's Restaurant, which still exists today, as well as its namesake in New York City, which opened 10 years later. You opened wow. Michael's in 1979. Here and 1989 there. And 1989 in New York. We'll be right back to hear more about this with Michael McCarty. I'm Will Knox. This is Mr. Restaurant, and I'm with the real Mr. Restaurant. What a pleasure. <laughs> Welcome, Somerset, England. The Jeremiah Show is now on Core Radio. Keep on rocking to the core. Core Radio, the Jeremiah Show, airs at 10 p.m. Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursday. Core Radio dot rocks. Hey there, I'm Caleb. I'm Becca. And I'm Joshua. And we are Girl Named Tom. Go to girlnametom.com to hear more of our music, buy merchandise, and learn about our story. You're listening to The Jeremiah Show. You've been listening to The Jeremiah Show. I am Miles Zuniga from Fastball. Hey, this is Tim. And this is Christian. We're L1011. Hi, this is Ron Sexsmith on The Jeremiah Show. And we're back with The Jeremiah Show. We're back. All of a sudden, here we are. Okay, Michael, the timeline's yeah. going really rapidly now. It's 1978. I'm building the restaurant. But but see, where are you getting your money, man? Okay, so as I said, I... Uh, Everybody's I, got ideas. I catered, I catered a lot. Okay. Uh, and, and, and my first customers were all the people that I catered for. So I had a, I had a chunk of money. Uh, but I went to nine banks uh, and applied for an SBA loan. And uh, eight banks turned me down. Well, you didn't have any collateral. Well, you had a house, I guess. I had I had the 20% that you required. Got it. Uh, you needed 20%. No, the collateral was the United States government. Uh, so the SBA, uh, I went to but That's nine stable. of them. But, you know, in those days, restaurants were like, what? Are you kidding? You're, 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 Plus, I had a four foot long ponytail, which I subsequently cut mm. so I could, you know, not freak them out. Um, but the the last restaurant I went to happened to be on Fourth and Wilshire right here. Well, who is showing you the real estate? Because I'm a real estate guy. That's what I do for a living. All right. I see. All right. I started out originally supporting my acting and producing career. Right. Coming into L.A. from San Francisco. I'm born and raised in San Francisco, yeah. fourth gen. And I come down to L.A. and I get into residential real estate to support my acting and producing in 1976. Right. Then the market just tanks in 1980 and I didn't know what I'm going to do. So I yeah. found that maybe if I go into commercial real estate, yeah. that works. Well, the first restaurant, the first deal I did in commercial yeah. real estate, I found for a little known chef that you might know, his name was Wolfgang Puck. Oh, yeah. I found the Spago location. Oh, how great. So I got into real estate. So I'm concerned particularly about restaurant real estate. And how well, did that go. come to you? Who were you working with that was well, so turning you on to these it. locations? So I, I went and I finally got uh, Perry Jones was the branch manager, UC, United California Bank. And I presented my, uh, you know, I presented my package. It was all put together in the forms that you need for the SBA, all done exactly the way it's supposed to be. Did you have artwork? Did you have renderings, a deck? Oh, I had like the that? renderings. I had the artwork. I had the menus. I had the finances. I had the whole thing. And at the end of the meeting, uh, I, I said, okay, here's another one going down the tubes. And he said, so, Michael, listen, I've been looking at your menu. I see you have this Pacific swordfish here. And you're doing it with a Pomery mustard 
and white mushroom cream sauce. I happen to have a piece of swordfish in my house tonight that I was going to cook for my wife. Could you give me that exact recipe? I want to duplicate that. Oh, you're in now. <laughs> I said, I'm in. <laughs> so I said, yeah, Perry, here we go. And by the way, what are you doing tomorrow night? And I took him out to dinner. I went to all same of those restaurants. And, and, and he came back and he says, I think we can do this. We walked the property. Literally, it was two blocks from the, the, uh, the bank branch over here. We walked the property. He, uh, he said, I'm going to do this. I, I think you know what you're doing. I think it's good. Let's see what we do. And of course, he took it downtown to the big headquarters and they denied him. They said, what are you, an idiot? This is a restaurant. We don't do He's restaurants. Kid, forget it. And I said, Perry, you got to go to bat for me. You know this is going to be good. And so, so they did. And I got the loan. No partners, just me. And, uh, and in 78, we started building. Well, wasn't it less expensive to have the bank be your partner than to have three or four or five or 10 other partners? Oh, oh yeah. I mean, it right? was- Right, you had to give more away of, to those guys. It, it was, I think, it was part of the, was one part of the modern approach to the restaurant business, you know, that I felt very good about. You know, it was like, you could actually be an entrepreneur, you could do this, Uh and you could have a banking relationship and it was good. And, and it was, it turned out fine. And, you know, I, I tell you, my father was back in town for a meeting in 1979. They'd moved to Colorado and he was back in town at a meeting and they were at a dinner party. And uh, there was a guy at the table who was t talking and he's saying, yeah, you know that great restaurant, Michael's, that just opened up that you can't get into for six months? We financed it. It was the president of UC Bank. <laughs> and my father goes and goes, whoa, that was hilarious. Well, you arrived. You had arrived. Yep. And yep. you not only had this environment, but you created an environment with the people yes. who were there and the art and the food itself. So it was a whole package, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, I met uh, one of the great restaurateurs in town. Oh, you wouldn't know you wouldn't you may know and you would have known it at the time, um, you know, was uh, uh, he owned the he owned the polo store. He owned the Ralph Lauren store. Jerry Magnin. Jerry Magnin. Yes. And Jerry and his partner, Larry uh, Mendel, they owned about half a handful of restaurants. Classic Italian. Uh, they had Chianti on Melrose. They did Chianti. Uh, they owned a bunch. And but he also still had his very Jerry Magnin store. So I, I got to know him again through art. He was also an art collector. The world was very small in those days, you know. And so within a within a very short period of time, you knew the handful of players in the food and the wine and the art business. And and Jerry, I said, Jerry, look, at the standard uniform in all these restaurants throughout the United States and the world are tuxedos or variations on the tuxedos, depending on your, your status in the service. But I don't want to do tuxedos. He says, Oh, I got a guy for, I want something American. I only want American. So he takes me to the corner of a store. And he says, you see that over there? That guy's name is Ralph Lauren. And he's an up and coming designer and you're going to love this stuff. You know, and I'd gone to prep school. So I knew what that was all about. And it was perfect. We got the Ralph Lauren pink shirts you know oxford shirts we got a we got a rep tie we got khaki pants uh top siders and 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 we outfitted my staff in that and it was just a whole nother look again imagine yourself in the restaurant it's all outdoors the lights everywhere the walls are white there's art everywhere and and instead of people marching through it with you know the tuxedos they're marching through it with a really nice casual chic uh, you know, Ralph Lauren outfits. And it was, that was another big hit. You really fostered uh, creativity in your restaurants. Well, that's every it. Angle. I, 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 and I was very fortunate to have a great, great team. And I how mean, did you, you know, get that first team? Well, let me tell you, it was like, I would sit in the garden and I'm planning and finishing up construction. And then one by one, uh, these kids would walk in down the stairs and they'd heard about it. You know, uh, Jonathan Waxman, he he just walked down the stairs and he says, Michael, heard a lot about you. I want to go to work for you. So the, the world was so small with the chefs that they would just That's be it. able to chit chat. Oh, yeah. 
It, 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 yeah, word uh, got out that next, this guy's opening up in Santa Monica. Yeah. Next thing you know, Mark Peel walks down the steps. Nancy next Silverton. Thing you know, uh, uh, Billy Flug, who was from from uh, uh, from Boston, who happened to be out here and heard about it from Boston. He came down the steps. Ken Frank came down the steps. And 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 so I said, all right, you got and then Jimmy Brinkley, a fantastic pastry chef that nobody knows about, but is brilliant. Um, pioneered, uh, uh, you know, again, with me, we we really took the classic French pastries, modernized them, you know, made them uh, less booze, more about less weight and dense. You know, again, this is all this stuff going on. And so with that team, we opened up and it was the same thing. I got a bunch of Americans uh, in the front. Uh, my sommelier was the easiest part uh, to find because, first of all, there were no sommeliers. And Phil had worked when I was in Boulder. He ran the wine department in the Liquor Mart, which had the just to give you an idea of how important the Liquor Mart was in Boulder, Colorado. That Liquor Mart was owned by a guy who so loved wine, especially California wine and French wine. Because that's all there was at the time, really. But he got the same allocation that the entire Southern California, LA area got for his store. That's how successful it was. And so I found uh, uh, Phil and brought him to LA, and he opened up. And so we had this fantastic wine list. I mean, you know, when we opened up, Krug was our Krug was our champagne by the glass, and. Uh, 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 Schramsberg was our sparkling by the glass. Uh, Dick Graff from Shalone was our Chardonnay. Uh, and J Tom Jordan, who I knew from Colorado as well, I met there. It was his Cabernet was the Cabernet by the glass. But, I mean, you know, it was that kind of a thing. And you the created your own vineyard too, didn't you? Yeah, well, that was a little bit later. That was in 85. Got it. Yeah. Is that still yeah. around? The oh, oh, yeah. That, that burned down in the 93 fire with our house and everything. Uh -huh. But we rebuilt everything. And we got the vineyard back up. In fact, uh, this the only thing that loves this cold and rain in L.A. is uh, my vines. They can't believe how beautiful it is because they love to be dormant and they love the water. And so we're getting ready now. We're going to start pruning in about a week for the 2023 vintage. This is Malibu Vineyard. Malibu, the vineyard, right above Carbon Beach. Could I buy a bottle? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. On the I, open market? In fact, I'm going to, we're just bottling the 2016, uh, Bruno D'Alfonso and Chris Curran make my wine up in, uh, Lompoc in the wine ghetto. And, um, in fact, we're going to be, I, I, I've been using all of it at the two restaurants, New York and LA, but I happen to have had a big vintage in 2016. So we're going to be back to selling it to the restaurants and wine stores in Malibu itself, you know, like Paradise Cove and, and, uh, I live in Ojai now, and that's become a real big uh, axis between Santa Barbara, Lompoc, you mentioned, oh, uh, Manfred Crankle's got a big vineyard up there. He's the best. We, we, had, we had the complete selection of Cinquanon. Yes. He was one of the greats. I'd have to mortgage my house for that wine, but nonetheless, yes. you know. <laughs> Listen, uh, you now are established in Santa Monica. You're all of 25 years old. It had been open right. for a year. You're hot. Then what are you thinking to yourself? Well, I'm thinking that I really want to open one in New York. And, and this so, is your baby. This is your child. You don't have any children at this time, right? No. Yeah. Okay. So, and, uh, you know, it's great. So my wife and I took the last week of August off and the first week of September of 79. We'd only been open for five or six months. Went to Paris. Uh, and I was with... Uh, Stephen Spurrier and uh, John Winthrop and that owned the Academy du Vin. And I said, you know, and, and we just were having dinner reminiscing. And uh, he said, I'm going to be opening an Academy du Vin in New York City. I said, that's so weird. I, I was going to open a Michaels in New York City. And, I, and he said, well, I happen to have a great broker in New York. So uh, we changed our plans and went into New York, September. I met with the broker. Uh, I, I said, I'll be back in two weeks. This is my criteria. Got to be between 52nd and 59th. Got to be between Madison and you got to be between 6th. Because the one thing I was always frustrated with in the first few months of Santa Monica was we were booked six months out in advance for dinner. 
and you could shoot a cannon off for lunch. We were in an area where there was no lunch business, no matter what you did. So I said, I'd studied New York and I knew that Midtown was it. It was before Wall Street and downtown was happening, all the other places. But, uh, and so then I, when I went back, I actually found the location that I'm in right now. I had to wait 10 years to negotiate with Guido. It took me Guido. 10 years. <laughs> okay, well, that tells you enough right there. Yeah. You know. Dr. Finally, D, you're telling me, you're telling me two, two minutes. Is that to the end of the show? No, till another break. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm getting a little high sign. So Guido and you are becoming familiar with each other, but it took you 10, ten, years, years, ten years from the time you saw this site to yes. take it. As a yes. broker, I can tell you, you're a marvelous client to work with because you knew exactly where you wanted I to go. Knew, you had laser I, they focus. They showed me so many other places and I said, no. Nope, it's all crap, this, you know. This is New York. This is my place. It has a huge garden. It looks just like the buildings were built the same year, 1933. This is California bungalow year. That is a modern hipster building built by the Rockefellers. I couldn't believe it. And so who was going to finance that? The bank again? Well, then by then I was... Uh, Rolling I, I, dough. I, there's a whole other story. I built three other restaurants. You don't have any stories, them. Michael. I know. <laughs> I need some stories. I know. <laughs> so, but you got the fine, you had the finance and you were very self-assured after yeah. less than a year of opening in yeah. Santa Monica that I'm going to yeah. go do New York, although it took 10 years later. 10 years later. Okay. Well, but good in the things meantime, come to those who In wait. the meantime, uh, I was very involved in the American Institute of Wine and Food. That's where the Julia Child came in. And this is 1979 and 80. That's how uh, you met Julia Child? Yes. She was one of the first people in my restaurant. Uh, Robert Mondavi, Dick Graff from Shalone, uh, Richard and Tecla Sanford, uh, Heights, Joe, Jordan, of course, uh, you know, and, and we got together and we, we founded the American Institute of Wine and Food. Wasn't and Bob Morris involved with that group? In the beginning, we were a uh, we tried to get anybody who was anybody to become involved because we needed money, obviously. And it was a very important thing. We wanted to get. Uh, you know, the mission statement was to make gastronomy part of the art world and art education and not just in home ec. So you could actually get a degree. Uh, and we we really spent a lot of time and money. We had these conferences of gastronomy all over the United States. And, and it was a, it, that's a whole other story. Well, we're going to stop on that story because Dr. D is imploring me to, right? Okay, very good. Right, Doc? Mm -hmm. Okay, got to take another break. Stay tuned to Michael McCarty. I'm Will Knox, and you're listening and watching Mr. Restaurant. Check out Jeremiah's top 10 new artist picks on Radio India Alliance each week. The Radio India Alliance is a chart service that allows indie recording artists an opportunity to have chart placements. We don't charge. We support RadioIndiaAlliance.com. everybody, this is Ann H. Hey everybody, I'm Art Alex Hux from the band Everclear. My name's Danny Dreho. And you're listening to The Jeremiah Show. Jeremiah, you're loved, Holmes. Do you need help with your restaurant or hospitality business? See how we can help your business at hjlrestaurantadvisors.com. Hey, this is Jeff Skunk Baxter. Please open your heart and reach out to a veteran and let them know, number one, that they are loved and respected. You won't give up if they don't give up. And you're listening to The Jeremiah Show. We're back now with Michael McCarty, who is probably Mr. Restaurant Incarnate, without a doubt. Yeah, I'm Will Knox. Michael, thank you for being here today. Uh, we've got about another 10 minutes, but... As I asked you at the break, you'd come back for part two, right? Right. Okay, we're going to do this another day because there's just a lot to cover. And we're only at yeah. 1980, and we know that yeah. you opened up in 1989. But, you know, you're, you're with the American Institute of uh, Wine and Food. And, food. Yeah. and, you know, you're really rolling now, though, in, in yeah. Santa Monica. And yeah. Well, I mean, I think it was the important thing about Santa Monica was we we were accomplishing so many new things you know they referred to us as california cuisine 
And, uh, and I would explain to people that really what we were, <coughs> where we just began, we pioneered regional American food. Uh, and as you know, today, uh, and like I said, when I did the James Beard dinner at the Stanford court, Jim Nasikas was James Beard's oldest friend. And in San Francisco, I went to San Francisco every, every month for the board meetings because Jim would host them at the Stanford court. And we would all meet there and we would go, you know, it was, the meetings were important, but it was where we were having lunch and where were we having dinner, which was almost as important. Um, and we, 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 as part of getting the word out on the American Institute of Wine and Food, we had to do events, obviously, because we wanted to raise money. We wanted to show people what these young chefs were doing, what the new wineries were doing, what the progress that was being made, and all in the, you know, in the effort to create new American food. And so, for example, like that, those chefs I reeled off before in 1983 is when we were doing the the first James Beard event. Uh, and we, I reached out to those chefs and each one of them represented a different area in America where they were pioneering their region's modern American food. You know, Paul Prudhomme was transforming the old Creole uh, recipes and making them modern. And that was his K-Pauls. Uh, Larry Forgione in New York, you know, he was at the River Cafe at the time and had and and was opening, you know, was really doing a bang up job of sourcing locally, getting the produce, getting the proteins, et cetera. Jimmy Schmidt in Detroit. He worked at the London Chop House, also another friend of Jimmy. Bradley Ogden in Kansas City. Bring and Bradley in Ogden influence. in Kansas City and Jeremiah and all regional and everybody up San Francisco. And so. We put this dinner together. Alice Waters was, was part of this at that time. Alice Waters, uh, you know, and I should send you the link one day to the movie because I filmed the whole thing. Oh, I'd love to see that. It, it, and then we edited it down and it's a great movie that showcases individual pieces of each chef and each winemaker. Uh, Laura Chanel and her goat cheese paired with Bob and Davi and his, you know. How, 19- how long, a, how long a, a film is this? Uh, well, it's about 30 minutes. So we could show it on down. Mr. Restaurant with my short film, Too Much yeah. Oregano, which won the Cannes Film Festival in 1980. Oh, I didn't know that. I'm going to show it to you. You'll see Fantastic. it. We're going to trade each other's creativity. Yours is far <laughs> beyond mine, however. Now, wait a second. Am I being cued again? Is this two minutes and that's it? Two minutes to close? This is yeah. BS. For part one. Okay. Part one. Come on, Michael. We're just yeah. getting started. This is the appetizer, for Christ's sake. Right. Oh, excuse me. Sorry. Um, all right. So, 83, you're doing this, and I'd love to see that film. Yeah. And, and, and But I, I have a curiosity, and that is, you're working down south in, in Southern California, and Alice Waters yeah. is working in Northern California. Yes. And you're almost on similar tracks and you both are quote California cuisine you're being labeled as so the pundits are calling it that were you in any way competitive with Alice did you feel not at all friendly competitors she was a very big part of the American Institute of Wine and Food that was the other thing it was like chefs had always been rivals in the French wars you know what I mean yes Uh, they hated each other and they were rivals and you know there's all kinds of stories trying to outdo but each other. We were we were bound and determined to do two things. Number one, have the American restaurateurs and chefs, you know, be colleagues in this, be cohorts. Uh, the other thing, which as far as running the restaurant was, I insisted on breaking the age old problem of the, you know, the 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 hatred between the front and the back of the house, you know, which was always classic and horror. Everybody's in the restaurant business. But no. Uh, Alice, Jeremiah, Mark Miller in San Francisco. Um, it, it was, you know, they were, you know, Mark was just beginning to do new Southwest American food. You know, he pioneered the idea of using, it sounds ridiculous, but jalapenos and cilantro, you know, with French olive oil and lime juice. And <laughs> I'm hungry. On a grilled quail, you see, over mesquite. Don't and let I, me know, see That's how beautiful it was in those days. Right. And, and Jeremiah, you know, I mean, he, he, 
you know, like Larry Forgione did with his roast chicken, his free range chicken. You know, he basically coined the idea of calling it a free range chicken. Uh, and, and, and when we did the dinner, the menu tells it all. The menu tells it all. When we, you know, Bradley and, uh, and Jimmy were doing, you know, modern Midwest using the traditions and the ingredients. You know, of course, now here we are flash forward to today. Every state in the union has its own modern American food based on the traditions uh, and the modernization of that. We were in Minneapolis last month. We ate in a restaurant run by a guy called the Sioux Chef, Sioux as an Indian, and he only uses pre-colonial ingredients. And it was a fantastic meal in Minneapolis. Uh, he's brilliant. Uh, and, 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 you know, again, the revolution has succeeded and is televised. Oh, I've got to get some of that North Dakota chili. I guess yeah. I have no idea, <laughs> you know, um, oh God, I'm, I'm overwhelmed with, with your knowledge, but I'm really, um, very transfixed by the fact that you have created a life that is both culinary and entrepreneurial you've got the business thing going you've got the food thing going you've got the art thing a lot of those intersections and you were part of a movement that everybody seemed to elevate everybody else to the higher standard and you've set the bar very very high and you you've been able to maintain it over these many years i mean the best restaurants in the world are not necessarily having this long run that you've had did you ever run into a fallow period a period that was really kind of like you know i think i'm going to close it well let me tell you i got a lot of stories about that we should save all of that oh, that's for, for part two yeah. Okay, because we're going to leave on an up note for sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're we're going to get into some of the disappointments in part two. But geez, you know, this has been a really, really uplifting time, and just not enough. I don't have enough time to to cover Michael McCarty. You know, <laughs> is there anything that you would say to a twenty four year old aspiring person who wants to open his or her own restaurant or they's own restaurant? I, I would say that it is a fantastic uh, career choice. It is very much more difficult than in the past, as everything is. Uh, what we go through in running restaurants uh, is, you know, it used to be all fun. It used to be about food and service and the decor and the people. And, 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 and work has unfortunately creeped into it. You know, the government regulations, the this, the that, the that, the this, you know, it's 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 not for the faint of heart. Now, in the old days, it wasn't for the faint of heart either. But that was because people uh, looked at it as an emotional reason to go out and say, I want to own a restaurant. It was a creative thing to do. Yeah. And 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 and, and it, it does take work and it does take clarity. Uh, the good news is. If you are good at what you've got, your concept down, and it is simplistic, uh, you you can win big, and you can have a great time doing it. Um, the dynamic has changed drastically. We can do that for the next group. But you, you know, have to stay time. focused. Yeah. It is all about focus, and it's about knowing what you're capable of doing. And right now, there are so many role models to be to track. You can you can see the good, the bad, and the ugly in our business really right in front. Well, I can tell you one thing that I marvel at, and that's you and Wolfgang Puck. You both are in your restaurants yep. still, and yep. that's what I think makes your restaurant so successful because you have got the passion, and you're not just telling people about it. You're really right. exhibiting it. Exactly. You're, well, that's the fun. piece of art. That's the fun part. Well... Thank you for making my life fun today. I can't thank you enough for being part of Mr. Restaurant. This is Will Knox. I am with the real Mr. Restaurant. I've said it, but it's true. Michael McCarty. I'm signing off until we eat again. Hi, this is comedian Maz Chobrani, and you are listening to The Jeremiah Show. Listen, man. Did you?
Did you like our soundtrack? Find all of our soundtracks on Spotify. The Jeremiah Show. Look for the black label. As always, a big thanks to our station manager, Les Carroll, for letting us on the air at all. Listeners, we appreciate you and want to hear from you. Please send us your ideas at jeremiah at thejeremiahshow.com or on Messenger, on Facebook, or Instagram. The Jeremiah Show is produced by executive producer Jeremiah Higgins and me, your announcer, Tony Kelly. Communicate, listen more, and evolve. I'm a This is Miles Copeland. Yeah, I just had the honor of speaking to the Jeremiah Show. Who would have believed that little old me would have the opportunity to speak on such a prestigious show? And they even talked about my book, Two Steps Forward, One Step Back, My Life in the Music Business. So it was a great pleasure to uh, be on that show, the Jeremiah Show. I love you. I love you. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.